Hello and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Lewis and I'm here with my co-host Simon. Uh, and today we are going to talk about another of the essays of George Orwell. But before we start, Simon, how are you doing? I am splendid. Yourself? All right. I am uh, still a bit jacked up from a very strong pot of tea, um, <laughs> but uh, I'm now relaxing with a glass of whiskey from the west coast of Scotland. Well, more specifically... Are we allowed to mention the brand name? Um, yes, it's Drambui, which oh. is great. Send us a crate of it, please. And this is my first ever glass of Drambui. And Lewis has guided me into a new dimension, which is not going to be good for my well-being. No. Because <laughs> it's delicious. But That's you're going to enjoy the ride. I will. All yeah. the way down. Yeah. Surrounded by flames. <laughs> <laughs> Today, it's my choice of essay. Mm -hmm. And we are going to be talking about, again, one of George Orwell's most famous essays, and like our last essay from later in his writing career, it's Decline of the English Murder. This essay is about what we call true crime, which I think everyone's familiar with. It's had a lot of popularity in recent years, especially in the podcasting world. True crime is entertainment, journalism etc based on real crimes often murder that have happened to real people now uh simon how do you feel about this genre true crime i'm very fond of it i watch a lot of it mm. i don't read so much on all the, the uh, streaming services that are available now they have some really good true crime documentaries mm. or docu-series on it i just f finished watching one recently based on the the night stalker Yes, that's in my on my list. It's on your list. Mm. Yeah, don't watch it late. <laughs> it, 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 I was genuinely quite horrified after it, and um, I can relate it to what's mentioned in this essay in that it's uh, it's rare for a crime or for a serial killer in that there was just no no reason, mm. no reason behind the murder, no no pattern, which made it all the more disturbing. I don't think in this podcast we should get into the the morality of consuming this kind of thing. Nor any podcast. <laughs> yes. Because, in fact, George Orwell himself in this essay does not get into the morality of whether it's right to enjoy this kind of thing, whether it's right to read. Uh, I mean, he's specifically writing about people reading newspaper articles about true crime. Um, he never gets into, which I think is very interesting, he never gets into, is this okay? What about the, the, the hanging of the um, female accomplice? He does touch on that. He gives his opinion on the morality of, of her sentence. I, does he give his opinion on the morality? Because I think he just mentions that the public found it distasteful for a woman to be hanged, which is true. Um, I, I, I read into it otherwise. I thought that really? the, the, the public were clamouring for her to be hanged due to the effects of the numbness of wartime England. Ah, you make a good point. Yeah. We'll get on to that yeah, later, yeah. I think. 
Um, but first of all, we've we talked a bit about about true crime, and I think now we we should get into this essay. It was published again late in Orwell's career when I think his essays were just getting good. It's so unfortunate that he died only four years later because. I mean, in this podcast, I don't want to. I don't want us to speculate. I don't want us to say, "Oh, what do you think Orwell would have thought of social media or that kind of thing?" There's yeah. a moratorium on that. But I think it's such a shame because in his later career, he was really forging a new path. I think, and and essays like this show that. So this was uh, published in the Tribune, fifteenth of February, nineteen forty-six. Yeah. So let's just summarize the essay. Orwell begins by highlighting the interest of the English, specifically English, public in murder, especially as it is reported in the newspapers. What are your thoughts on that, Simon? Well, what I find interesting is how he mentions the news of the world mm. in particular. And for those who aren't familiar with the well, now defunct news of the world, it was a tabloid. And I'll tell you an in- interesting story about the news of the world. When it was decommissioned in 2011 because of the phone tapping scandal. So long ago. Feels like it was just yesterday. It does, doesn't it? Nine years ago. Well, it was decommissioned as a result of the inquiry into that. And in in their last issue, they quote the opening lines of this essay. And people who are students of Orwell were disgusted by this because he mentions the news of the world in this letter to emphasise how he's being satirical mm. in the sensationalist nature of tabloids and the news of the world were unable to read into the nuances of that so I, I find it interesting that you think it's satire I'd like to return to that maybe yeah. towards the end um, he, so he, he talks about how the, the English public is interested in murder and then he proposes this idea that there was want of a better phrase, we don't mean for this to be insensitive, but it's hard not to be insensitive Mm -hmm. when you're talking about this kind of subject matter. Orwell proposes that there was a kind of golden age of English murder. He says, our great period in murder. Our Elizabethan (laughs) age. (laughs) I I chuckled. Mm. And he's he's writing, on, he's doing it on purpose. Well, he's a journalist. He's he's good at what he does. And he's trying to make us laugh Mm. with it. So he, he proposes that this Elizabethan age is roughly 1850 to 1925. And again, something I would like to return to, this coincides with the height of British influence in the world, 1850 yes. to 1925. I'm interested to hear what you have and to say. And British introspection. Yes. Who we are and what is Britain. What is Britain? And so he gives some examples of famous cases that gripped the public imagination, and he analyzes the motives, methods, and the social backgrounds of each case. And he proposes a kind of ideal story. The ideal story for these readers of papers like News of the World is a a little educated but professional English middle-class man living in the suburbs, holding some kind of prominent and respected position in society, who is then undone by his sexual passion for someone other than his wife, and he then murders uh, with poison, which he sees as really necessary. Murders with poison to avoid social disgrace. Yes. The adultery of the middle and upper classes. 
Yes, and I think I think especially more the middle, maybe the upper middle class, upper middle classes, yeah, which of course Orwell belonged to. Then Orwell compares this with the most well-known crime of the war, uh, called the Cleft Chin Murder, which interestingly enough is completely, almost completely forgotten today. I which he think, predicts. In mm, I don't think anyone would remember that murder unless they read this essay. Um, I mean, did you learn of the Cleft Chin Murders from this essay? Yes. Yeah, yes. me too. I've never heard of them. It does have a Wikipedia page, but that's probably because of this essay. Yeah. I mean, my left foot could have a Wikipedia page if I made it. It is a very interesting... That, that's not a... <laughs> is it your most interesting appendage? Um, I'm quite happy. I, I've got good elbows. How about you? I've always been very proud of my nose. <laughs> <laughs> I could lo- I could land a seven four seven on that. <laughs> well, keeps my glasses up anyway. Anyway, this this murder, uh, which you've now almost forgotten, was committed by an American GI, and his accomplice was a young British woman. It was a wartime murder, and the description Orwell makes of the crime makes it clear that it was a very kind of pointless and tawdry crime. And in conclusion, Orwell points out how the more recent murder case, the Clefchin murder, is very much a product of its time. It's a wartime period, wartime crime. Mm -hmm. And the product of a society desensitised to violence. This is 1946. Civilised, in inverted commas, civilised people have been dropping bombs on each other for for seven years. You know, desensitised to violence, desensitised to immorality, the pressures of war. A nihilistic crime, and when you compare that crime to the crimes of the so-called Golden Age, you could at least say the crimes in the Golden Age are more easily understood in terms of emotion. Sorry, it it still makes me chuckle. The Golden golden Age. Elizabethan (laughs) Simon, what did you think of this essay? I love it. There's a reason this essay is one of his most famous. Because it evokes so many different aspects of society, culture... And, yeah, I I can read it over and over again. But the main thing I take from it is, for me, once you've read a lot of his essays, this essay is part of a thread of the decline of English society. Yes. And and I'll say English. Mm. We could take away the adjective of English, to be honest, but in this particular instance, the decline of English society, it's Mm. part of a thread. That's quite right. And also, I think that... It really is very, very striking, as I said before, how the so-called golden age of murder, which he says was the product of a stable, yeah. to quote Orwell, stable <laughs> society, mm. um, that coincides with the height of the British Empire, height of British power in the world. So there's this kind of feeling of post-war, post-war decline, really. I mean, this is a year before the British Empire starts to break up, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it, it's mirrored in the essay, the decline of empire, the decline of English society. But um, going back, what I'd like to hear from you is the beginning of the essay where he sets the scene. Yes. Did it make you laugh? It made me laugh, but God, it really made me very nostalgic as yeah. well. I don't know how if it had this. In, uh, Is he going for humour? Was he going for nostalgia? Because I sense humour. I sense. I think it's satirising of, it's of those who are reading this. It's nostalgic to a kind of, of you know a hipster like me, born in <laughs> nineteen ninety one, who uh, who rather longs for 
period of stability, you know, fire and drinking tea, Sunday lunch, all that kind of thing. But no, I, I would be very interested to hear, what do you think he's doing with that humour? I, I, I think he's taking you inside to the world of the tabloid. Mm. You know, he's... Middle England. Middle England. He's, he's, he's mollifying the seriousness of the subject. So it, it's about murder. It's about horrific, gruesome crimes. And by setting... I mean, for those who haven't read the essay, he, he talks about how the kids have gone out, the wife's washing up, and you're sitting in your mm. armchair with your pipe, the fire's on, and you open up the news of the world. What do you want to read about in such what do you want to read about circumstances? Exactly. A good old middle-class murder. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I do find that he's mollifying the, the gruesomeness of the subject purposefully so you are a part of that tabloid world. Yes. But do you think, is it satire? Is he is Orwell somehow saying, you know, look at yourself. Look at yourself for enjoying that kind of thing. Or yeah. is he saying, this is part of popular culture. We know he was a big fan of popular culture, yeah. pubs, sports, um, uh, the tea. Um, is he both celebrating and satirising it? Yeah, he's celebrating because he, he's saying an English murder, or how he envisions it, is a middle class man who doesn't lay a finger on, the, that, on, on his spouse who he inev inevitably kills for the matter of adultery or gaining money through inheritance. He poisons her. And probably it's the butler who did it. Mm. <laughs> or, or who finds it. It's it's charming, isn't it? You, you never watch an, an Ag or read an Agatha Christie novel and come away with a bad taste in your mouth. It's another good point bringing up Agatha Christie because, mm. of course, Orwell's life, you know, born 1903, died 1950... Orwell's life more or less coincides with what they call the golden age of crime fiction. Drambuisa? Yes, please. When Send us a crate. Crate of Drambuie. <laughs> Drambuie is great. Um, and his life coincides with the golden age of crime fiction when all of these writers like Agatha Christie, Gail Marsh, all of those writers are taking... Cheers. Cheers. Taking these stories from the news and making fiction out of them and it's all very cosy yes and it's i suppose it's something that in a way english maybe to a greater extent british writers are quite good at which is both criticizing satirizing and celebrating british culture yeah. look, at, I mean, look at who, who's writing about murder in america at this time edgar Allan poe well edgar Allan poe's and it's victorian but, but but I, I mean, it, the golden age of English murder, I mm. mean, like during, and it's dark. Yes, and also... Um, the reflection of their society is dark, it's... I think an even better example would be Raymond Chandler, who yeah. was himself yeah. actually half English and, mm. and was educated at Dulwich College, um, <laughs> but then went back to America, wrote all of the Philip Marlowe stories, um, which, you know, like Big Sleep, Lady in the Lake, Farewell My Lovely, all that kind of thing. You're right, they're dark... They're gritty, they're about the city. So you have this newly industrialised country which has grown rapidly through immigration and industrialization in, in, in America. Mm. And, and, and when they, through introspection, they're 
It's de they're depressed about what they've created. Whereas the English murder is inev inevitably in a country house. It's domestic. Really. It's domestic on a nice London townhouse. And, and there's a butler, there's a maid, there's people who have come round for high tea. Whereas in America, it's in a dark alley. Mm. Or there's a crow sitting on the window who's influencing the dark events happening. And there's gangsters and mm. all of that. But, and of course, we're talking about fiction, but that, that was influenced by what was going on in the news. And mm. Orwell, he brings up all of these famous cases. Let me just, I'll, I'll have a look at my volume. I've mentioned it before. Simon and I used the Everyman edition of Orwell's Selected Essays, which is a brilliant book. He mentions... And if you don't like it, you could commit a domestic murder with it. It's so big. Yes, it's huge. If you have uh, no poison. Please, please don't commit a domestic murder. Yes, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> let's see. He mentions, between 1850 and 1925, the murderers... I'm quoting Orwell now. The murderers whose reputation has stood to the test of time are the following. Actually, let me... I wanted to ask you, Simon, how many of these names you recognised. Dr. Palmer of Rugeley or Rudgeley? No. Jack the Ripper? Yes. Neil Cream? No. Mrs. Maybrick? No. Dr. Crippen? Yes. Seddon? No. Joseph Smith? No. Armstrong? No. Bywaters and Thompson? No. Okay, so the ones that really stood out there for Simon, who, Simon likes true crime, but I would say I am the true crime buff. Yeah, this is your... This is your thing. I'm a morbid this bugger, is, really. This, horror stories, mm. horror folklore, mm. and true crime is your bread and butter, yes. isn't it? Yeah. My jam, as my teenage nephew said. <laughs> and Whereas I have a passing interest, but um, when I wake up in the morning, I see the sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that really stood out for Simon, who's not particularly a true crime fan, were Jack the Ripper. Everyone knows Jack the Ripper. Yeah. And Orwell actually says, Jack, Orwell kind of pushes Jack the Ripper to one side and says, oh, it's famous, but that's not really part of my schemata. I'd like to come back to that later mm -hmm. on. I have a theory so about why he says The one that really stood out was Jack the Ripper, which Orwell pushes to one side. I know all of these. Just to, to sum up, Dr. Palmer, Victorian poisoner, serial killer. Uh, Neil Cream, again, another Victorian poisoner. Mrs. Maybrick poisoned her husband but got away with it, I think. Okay. Um, Dr. Crippen uh, Dr. allegedly poisoned his wife. There's been some, well, he, not allegedly, he was hanged for it, but um, there has been increasing evidence in recent years that something odd might have been going on there. Seddon, I'm not so sure, but I, if you said Seddon to me, I would say that he, he was a murderer. Joseph Smith. The Brides in the Bath murderer, who, again, serial killer who poisoned women and made it look as if they drowned in the bath. Oh, and then he played... Nearer My God near, to near, the... Yeah, the in the next room whilst they, whilst they drowned. Which is very much a period touch, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Uh, again, like, I mean, Orwell mentions how we couldn't invent that in fiction. Mm, exactly. It, it comes from reality, these these. Which is another reason why these live on in, yeah. in, in popular culture. Armstrong... Um, if you've never seen it, look for a very good drama called Dandelion Dead, which is all about the crimes of Armstrong, who was a very respectable solicitor in a border town on the borders of England and Wales, who, who poisoned his wife with arsenic. 
Bywaters and Thompson, a really sad case of a, a woman having an affair with the lodger and then she says to the lodger, oh, wouldn't it be good if my husband was dead? The lodger murders the husband and then the woman gets hanged as well, even though she didn't actually commit the crime herself. How, how did the lodger kill the husband? Stabbed him, I think. Stabbed him. Mm-hmm. So all of these are, they, they were very big crimes. What is it about poison? Is it the lack of touch? I think it is. The lack of contact. The, the separation of, of guilt. Also, um, the, the stereotype is that poisoning is a woman's crime. Although, of course, here you have several examples mm. of men who poisoned. Dr. Palmer, Neil Green. It's, it's a very intimate crime. Because in order to poison someone, you need access to their food, which means you need to be really part of the household. Is it a quick death? No. no it's, it's a very really horrible. So you, you have to be full of spite and venom yes. to poison. Well, pardon the pun, full of venom. Either full yeah. of spite or just a psychopath without yeah. feeling at all. But I don't think a lot of these murders, I don't think they're psychopaths. I think they're... Opportunists. 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 Mm. Well, we'll get on to that, I think, because Orwell speaks about that. But um, you were asking, you had a question, didn't you, Simon, about one of the... um... So in it, when he's listing famous cases, he mentions a 1919 Mm. case, which he cannot go into further details on because of an acquittal. Do you know what that case is? I've researched it, but couldn't find it. Now, again, this is because I'm a... If anyone knows, you know. <laughs> this is because I'm a bit of a, a, bit of a, a little creeper, but um, I know this crime. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you said I know this crime after the word creeper. <laughs> um, so, I think, this is just my feeling. Okay. Um, I think this is what was termed the Green Bicycle Murder in 1919. Is there empirical evidence? Uh, well, let when, me tell when, you... When you say my feeling. Let me tell you why I think it's the Green Bicycle Murder. First of all, it was the biggest murder of the post-World War I period. In, okay. You know, in the few years after World War I. And the Green Bicycle Murder was this young woman cycling through the lanes, the rural lanes of Leicestershire uh, in 1919. She gets shot. No one witnesses it. Then the, the only bit of evidence the police have is that there's this man who, who was with her, cycling with her. He was riding a green bicycle. A few months later, they find the police find a green bicycle in a canal. It's had its, uh, uh, what do you call, serial number filed off deliberately. Okay. They manage somehow to trace that bicycle to a guy called Ronald Light, who was a school teacher, uh, a veteran of the Great War. He'd been an officer. At this point, should we say to the Light estate that this is Oh, don't, don't worry, don't worry. I've, <laughs> I've, I have listened to many podcasts. We don't take this lightly. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, shed light upon <laughs> Mr. Light's crime, would you? <laughs> we should mention that in the previous podcast, we have a... Uh, a pun jar for each pun we have to donate a pound to and, and all, all money end... will go to a pun charity yes <laughs> uh, victims of uh, of 
crimes against morphology. Yeah. Very linguistic joke, if one will say. Ronald Light was a veteran of the Great War. He'd been an officer. He had shell shock. Some may say a war hero. But he was also a very dodgy character with a history of, frankly, if you look at it from a modern perspective, sex offences. As a result of his shell shock, or was this predating? Predating the war. And, of course, he was never brought to court for those offences, but they're well documented. You can't libel the dead, thankfully. (laughs) Um, And he got off, in my personal opinion, he got off because he had a really good lawyer, uh, Edward Marshall Hall. So was he moneyed? He was middle class. He was very solid. So he could afford Marshall Hall. Edward Marshall Hall, his lawyer, was the premier defence lawyer of the time, who was even known. His nickname was the Great Defender. And what was Mr. Light's profession post war? Uh, he was a teacher, I believe. Oh, yeah, you did mention it. A uh, maths teacher or a science teacher. Uh, and the lady who was shop? Factory girl. Okay, so middle class man meets. Working class girl yes. kills or gets away with. Yes, I think that's what happened. And uh, repeat the record. And then I think actually at the time Orwell was writing this, he was still alive, so that's why Orwell he wasn't allowed to thing. But it was a big case. When did time. Mr. Light die? Died. I think probably you know just a bit after Orwell wrote this, maybe in the fifties. In the fifties. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm pretty sure it's the green bicycle case. And again, uh, again, it really links into what Orwell's saying about respectability. Middle class guy accused of murder, um, respectable character in the community, all of that. So let's have a think about Orwell being selective. You you mentioned Jack the Ripper, but what are your thoughts there? Well, we'll probably talk about this further, but the reason he is very um, negative towards the cleft chin murders is because how it's how they deviate from an English murder due to the insensitivity, the senselessness of the, the, the lack of reason. Now, what do we know about the Jack the Ripper murders? What's the reason? The, 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 the most coherent reason you could put is that the man did not like prostitutes. prostitutes. But that's speculation. Mm. Or, or was misogynistic, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. I find that he would be contradicting himself had he used Jack the Ripper as a case study in this essay. So I do find it convenient that he defines it as being in a class by itself. Mm. And I don't think popularity can justify something being in a class by itself. There's numerous contexts in which something becomes popular. Most cannot be explained. In this case, probably because it's unsolved. Mm-hmm. So I do find it's a convenient selection process. Also, the whole milieu is not middle class. And for Orwell, the, the again, it's a terrible word to use, but the ideal murder in this category, the ideal English murder, is in a middle class milieu. But most of the suspects of of whom Jack the Ripper may have been, were upper middle class, upper class. You I mean, make a good point. The Prince of England was one doctors, of them. Yeah, um, doctors. Yeah, doctors. But then there were also, I mean, the, the crimes surgeons. were... Think about the crimes that were committed, you know, think about the, the Biwop 
Bywaters case, the Thompson Bywaters case, the Crippin, uh, these were all committed behind closed doors in a domestic space. Yeah. Not being stabbed to death in a back alley and in, then in cut the open. In the East End, yeah, in yeah. a city. Yeah. All the other murders are very suburban. Yeah. So um, those murders were happening. Mm. And he's selectively decided that that isn't an English murder. Yes, and there's another thing I wanted to bring up, which was if you're interested in true crime and you read the kind of books that I read, and, mm-hmm. um, then you come to realise quite quickly that most murders, they're committed between people who know each other and most of them are done in the heat of the moment. They're people losing their temper and bashing another person over the head or there are two guys having a fight outside the pub and one falls and hits his head on the curb and those are not the kind of murders that Orwell is is highlighting well in in a biblical sense Jack the Ripper knew his victims yes (laughs) well we don't know actually we don't know we just assume being that they were prostitutes but I mean is Orwell's nostalgia blinding his objectivity i don't think it's nostalgia i think it's again i think this is a it's selective nostalgia. it's selective but i think this is a prime example of how orwell was first and foremost a journalist and yeah. he wasn't unlike an academic he wasn't saying uh this is true because this this and this and citing all of that um, he was saying, this is true, look at this example, look at this example. Okay, move on to the next point, don't think too much about that. So, he's a sensationalist himself. I wouldn't in say... In a pure journalistic sense, rather than being an academic in the sense of how he's approached this essay. I wouldn't say a sensationalist, but I would say he he doesn't want you to think too much about his arguments. Yeah. And he, he is very much, this is polemic. This is, is, not, is that not sensationalism in its purest form? Well. It, it's avoiding empiricism and focusing entirely upon what we want to believe. Yes. And to say, you're, you're, you're quite right. And to say that this is, you know, this is what makes an English murder. Yeah. Very essential, isn't it? Very essentialist. Yeah. I, I, I'm not comfortable with how it's defined as an English murder. Mm. It, by by defining these as an English murder, do you not think we are placing ourselves upon a kind of cultural pedestal? That is something you need to think about with this essay, because yeah. he contrasts these murders, these murders that are unlike Jack the Ripper, but the other ones which are the product of deep emotion, guilt, mm-hmm. lust. Is lust, I, lust is a deep emotion, isn't it? You would know more about that than I <laughs> I, I would say lust is is a, is the antithesis to a deep emotion, right. isn't it? Um, love would be the deep emotion. Okay, it's, love. Actually, love yeah. is a good one because often he says that you know that these murders are committed by you know a kind of man who who, who harbors mm. emotions that do not match. Because that's another good point actually. Because the the murders that Orwell brings up, committed for the sake of respectability. Yeah, it's not necessarily a, a motive keeping your respectability. It's not necessarily a motive that would animate people today, is but it? But is he making excuses for an English murder? I don't think he's making It's excuses. for love, it's for money, it's for, it's for prestige within your societal group. 
within your mm. community of practice to, to, to maintain your member of the middle classdom. You have uh, to commit this murder. Yes, but again, at no point is Orwell saying this is, you know, these murders are justified. He's just mm. saying these murders interest people because they contain the, the building blocks of humanity, yeah. raw emotions. There's logic behind the murder. Mm. Now, logic doesn't have to be ethically no. pure. It can be corrupt. But um, what's the common theme in his example, and that being the cleft chin murders, that he dislikes? What is the nationality of the principal well, protagonist? I can actually uh, I can read you a quote which mm. I think really sums it up. Is he English? No, he's not. Exactly. And, and, and like I say, I think I can read this quote, which I think really sums it up. Perhaps it is significant that the most talked-of English murder of recent years should have been committed by an American and an English girl who had become partially Americanized. Yeah, I'd also highlighted that quote. Now, um, no, I, I, I think we should dedicate the next segment to discussing this theme. Yes. I think it's very, very important, this essay. And um, I didn't want to bring it up earlier because, um, for me, this is the, the nucleus of, of the essay. So the, the principal characters, as we've already discussed, were um, he was a deserter, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So he was a, an American GI, GI, and he deserted, posing as a... Well, he said he was a big, as Orwell puts it, a big-time gangster from Chicago. Okay, yeah. But what was his deserter disguise? I don't like, think he, was he telling... had a disguise. I think he was just telling this girl he met. Okay. He was a he was a gangster. And the girl's an eighteen year old um, striptease artist, right? Or... Well, it, Orwell says she's a failed striptease failed. artist. A failed striptease. Mm. What she kept her clothes. I don't. On. I don't know. If that means like <laughs> you, you had your pants on your head. Or... <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't know how you fail, but unless you drink enough drum booze, they send us a crate. Mm. Um, speaking of, would you like a glass, sir? Go on then. Yeah, let's quickly top up. Drambuie is really great. <laughs> drink, drink responsibly. Yes. Drink yes. it only if you're over 18, but and it's great. Please send us a crate of it. And we are taking the underground home. We're not driving. This crime, for me, is allegorically linked to the onset of the Americanization of British culture. Yes, popular culture especially. Popular culture, or I could even say global culture. It's 1946. The Marshall Plan is being brewed up. Because of the war, American influence is spread around the world economically. And with that comes American popular culture. And Orwell clearly sees it coming and does not appreciate it no. at all. And sees this crime as a precursor to the onset of what we've just discussed. Yes, I think it really relates to... There's another essay that we might read in the future called Pleasure Spots, yeah. um, which is another one of my favourites, uh, which is all about the emptiness of pleasure culture, or culture that's focused around as much pleasure in as short a time as possible. Orwell, Orwell is nothing if not a romantic, mm -hmm. and... Well, the emotional weight yes. of an English murder comforts him. Yes. Clearly. Um, and I think that in a way he's saying these murders, he's not condoning them, but he's saying these murders were interesting because there were human emotions behind them and they came from a time, not a good time, a, a time of hypocrisy, a time of 
imperialism, a time of uh, great social inequality, but yeah. they came from a time of stability. Yes. A time when you knew what the world was and, and yeah. how everything was ordered. And he's saying we're now moving into a period, thanks to the war, yeah. we're now moving into a period of great uncertainty and we're moving into a period where uh, it's going to be lowest common denominator. Well, uncertainty creates a void. And what's yeah. filling that void post-World War II? It's American popular culture. So this crime perpetrated by an American in England, there's a lack of motive. It's random. It's senseless, which is the complete antithesis of an English murder. And there, there is the metaphor for the decline of English society, an onset of a more globalized, popular American cultural society. However, it's interesting to point out that the case that he thinks is emblematic is now forgotten. It would be completely forgotten apart from this essay. Yeah. But the other cases, cases he didn't know about when writing this, I mean, um, he didn't mention that there was a very famous murder in the 30s in Liverpool, the murder of Julia Wallace, which would fit into his, uh, his categorisation. Um, and I, there have been lots of podcasts about that. These cases live on. The Clefchin murder does not. So I wonder what that says. Because we gain nothing from reminiscing about it. We, we gain no nostalgic senses of what we want our society to be based on how it used to be. All we see from that matter is a, a vision that we're not comfortable with. Yes. So of course it's forgotten mm. easily. I think we've, uh, I think we've summed up quite well. Yeah, yeah. But ha- have we fallen into a trap on this podcast of discussing murder as the genre when we should be discussing murder as a genre of news story? Perhaps we have. Yes. yes. Which is completely understandable, but I wonder if he wanted us just to focus on murder as a news article. Yeah. And that goes back to the idea of him satirising yeah. interest in it. Has he separated his opinions on murder from murder within a newspaper? Something I found quite interesting when rereading this, because I've read this many times, it's one of my favourite George Orwell essays. This, this essay is so considered by publishers, by people who are interested in Orwell, it's considered so important that it's often used as the title essay in collections. When I went back to it, I was really surprised, first of all, by how short it was. Yeah. Secondly, by how it really glossed over the details of the so-called classic murders that he mentions. And I was also very surprised by his lack of judgment about whether murder is a suitable topic for, for journalism, for uh, opinion pieces for that kind of thing. How, how is murder reported now in, in this age of 24-hour news and Twitter? I think that we're in an interesting... It's an interesting d- dichotomy because on the one hand, true crime is just as popular as it has ever been. There are so many podcasts... I would say more so. So many podcasts about mm-hmm. true crime, so many blogs mentioning true crime. Docu-series, um, movies. But of course, the, the format that Orwell is writing about is the newspapers. And yeah. these days, 
what's happening to newspapers now. Exactly. Mm. Uh, but however, the tabloids, I think, the Star, the Express, I think they really still do rely on crime to attract readers. Yeah, they do. What I'm not comfortable with now in early 21st century is how tabloids use crime as a vehicle for other ideologies, other opinions. Yes. So whereas the tabloid in 19 early 20th century would talk about the white middle class gentleman, now the um, the ethnic origin of the perpetrator is going to be different. You think so? I do think so, yeah, to suit the needs of these sensationalist tabloids who seem to have a uh, an ideological agenda. Do you think that we no longer want to read about the little respectable doctor dentist solicitor in the suburbs doing away with his wife? Well, Howell Shipman made the front page. Exactly. So it, obviously there still is a an element of being able to associate with that notion of murder, but I, I, I just unfortunately think people are more interested in using true crime as a vehicle to express anger at wider issues, such as immigration and things like that. When an immigrant's murdered someone, it seems to get a lot more sensationalism than when a white middle-class man solicitor murdered mm. his wife. I have to say, as a... Because 1946, when this essay is written, is pre-mass immigration into Great Britain. So it's not an issue within mm. the tabloids yet. That's something I haven't considered. I, mm. I, I would say that I haven't i don't actually pay attention to a lot of modern true crime because i'm a big history fan i, I yeah, love history yeah. and one of the reasons i like true crime as a genre is the window it gives you into society at a particular time this period that orwell is writing about that 75 year window between 1850 and 1925 i think it's so fascinating he, he he's right on point when he makes the point about how people people kill to preserve their social status, to preserve their yeah. respectability. But I, I have to say, I can't really, I don't feel qualified to comment on, on your idea of the political nature of true crime these days because well, I, I don't pay attention to that. We're, we're not living in a classless society now, mm. but it isn't as stratified as it was in the age of Orwell. Yes, and also these days, maybe Orwell was writing about how working class people wanted to look at their so-called betters, in inverted commas, and say, oh, look, he pretends to be Nazi, he's a member of the temperance movement, he, yeah. he, he's a member of the conservative club, but look at his base instincts and his base actions, he's no better than, a, he's no better than he ought to be. Yeah. Um, but these days... Perhaps we're encouraged to look at our, again, quote-unquote, betters. Working-class yeah. people are encouraged to look at them and say, I want a bit of that. I want, I want to be middle-class. I want to be Or comfort in when looking at what they actually represent and thinking they're no better than me. Mm. So why shouldn't I vote for them? <laughs> <laughs> um, something that surprises me that Orwell seems to negate in his study of tabloid sensationalism and murder is any a lack of any form of discourse analysis language used mm. within the newspaper i haven't seen any 1920s headlines but i can assure you it would say barrister 
Cheryl's life. Mm. Now, if it was a bricklayer, what do you think the title would have been? I think it would be like "Man Kills Wife." Man kills tragedy in yeah, tragedy in East. Or, well, it would be on page ten yeah. for a start because it was just a working class man, but it would be another man kills wife mm. in Hackney. And if it was a man like kicking in the head of another man outside a pub, it like, might not even get it's in. Not the in the newspaper, no. It's in it's in dispatches, but. So I'm surprised he doesn't go into that form of discourse analysis mm-hmm. about how if somebody is, is of money or is of higher class, it, it creates more sensation in the language as well as in, in the content. Mm-hmm. So, Lewis, that was really interesting. Thanks yeah, for that. You're welcome. I really enjoyed discussing that essay, but um, I believe it's time for a Orwellian fact. Yes. Uh, so you have to tell me whether you think this is true or false. Okay, false. We, we, <laughs> we like to call this part of the podcast... It's in your eyes. <laughs> we, no, that's Grand View. Um, we like to call this part of the podcast the Ministry of Truth, uh, where the presenter, the, the uh, co-host who chose the essay, uh, says a fact about Orwell, and the other co-host has to say whether he thinks it's true or false. So, my fact about Orwell. Okay, Orwell once reviewed a book about poltergeists, and he enjoyed it. Um, well, you've given me a, you've given me two things there. Are both true and both false, or one true and one false? I'm saying nothing. Okay, because he may have reviewed a book on poltergeist and not enjoyed it. But am I am I thinking too deeply there? I don't know of him reviewing a book of poltergeist. I also don't know when the phenomena of poltergeist became popular. It seems to me as though it would have been post his death that the phenomena of poltergeist would have become something that was discussed in the public sphere. So I'm going to say false. It's true. (laughs) We'll have to put the pound in the... Yes. (laughs) Orwell, I'm sorry everyone, this is off the top of my head, but... um, So how can I believe you then? (laughs) You can you can fact check. I want to check. see evidence. It's costing me a pound. Check. You know, I encourage everyone to fact check everything yeah. anyone tells you is I'm true. Not, this is mine's going to be a Trumpian fact check. <laughs> um, so Orwell, you, you can check. I can tell you where you can check this. You can check this in the excellent Penguin uh, letters of George Orwell, selected letters of George Orwell. Um, he wrote a letter to. I think it was it was one of the Sitwells. Do you know the Sitwells? They were a family, very wealthy English gentry family of I eccentrics. I, I come from the Sitbabbies. <laughs> the, the Slouchwells. Yeah. The Sitwells, who were a family of wealthy English eccentrics, very literary. Um, and one of the Sitwells, uh, who I think it was Sachaveril Sitwell, Sachaveril Sitwell. He was a, a chav. No. Sachaveril. <laughs> So, so not so well to do then. Sacheverell Sitwell, who was a, really into the occult, uh, wrote a book about poltergeists, and Orwell reviewed it and wrote to Sitwell, uh, saying, "You know, I really enjoyed your book." Sits well with me. Sitwell sits well with me. Um, <laughs> and yes, I think I think we're going to talk more. In the Did he believe though. in the supernatural? Was that another podcast? I think that's another. We, we could do a whole Orwell and Supernatural podcast, I think, uh, or at least a series, but uh, 
he enjoyed the book, he reviewed it, he thought it was a good book, and uh, we might touch on Orwell and the Supernatural in a future episode. Definitely. And another segment we're going to explore today, obviously taken from his um, seminal book, 1984, and more prominently for us, the TV series of the same name is Room 101, where I'm going to ask Lewis, and then he will repeat to me what he would like to put into Room 101. And for those unaware, that's um, some material object or abstract thing that you would like to banish from society. So, Lewis, what would you like to put into Room 101? We've touched on it today. Mm -hmm. I would like to put into Room 101 the tendency to say England when you mean Britain, or indeed... (laughs) Tell, tell the listeners where you're from. I'm from, you probably can't hear it in my accent, but I'm from Scotland. Mm-hmm. And uh, God, I could I could go off on one about uh, where people think I'm from based on how I speak. But uh, I know that a lot of people, particularly people from North America, find it a bit pedantic when people say, oh, do you mean England? Do you mean Scotland? Do you mean Britain? But it's not pedantic. It's my country. And it's, <laughs> it, it's where I come from. It's like me, it's, it's like them saying, oh, how are you doing? How, how are you doing, Leo? My name's Lewis. Oh, don't be so bloody pedantic. <laughs> um, this is something, I think we're going to talk about it more in future. I love Orwell, but he does tend to say England when he means Britain. And sometimes Britain when he means England. Yeah. And I think this is kind of interestingly for a man called Blair, whose ancestors were clearly Scottish. But uh, I would like to put into Room 101 people say, not the people, but the tendency to say England when you mean Britain. Okay. Right. What's your thoughts on that, you English bastard? <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you on that. Um, I don't do it, but. I receive it. People say, oh, you're from England. And I don't know whether to say, I actually am from Britain. Well, at least you are from England. So I I just, yeah, I'm from England. And um, so I've never really had the problem with that. But um, I agree with what you've said. Simon, what is your, what is the thing you would like to put into Room 101? Okay, I want to add a precursor to my, to the thing I'm putting into Room 101 before I tell you what it is. I don't, believe language is standardized nor do I believe it's static. I think it's a, a fluid entity that constantly evolves. There's no right or wrong. It depends on context. It context, sorry, it depends on pragmatics and negotiating meaning between two parties, okay? And you can say whatever bloody hell you want if two the two parties understand meaning and are not offended. But there is one word in the English language which gets on my bloody nerves that people misuse, and that is the word literally. Yes. The the curse of the last 20 years. Yeah. How do you understand the true meaning of the word literally? Well, if someone says to me, I was literally dead, I would think, oh, well, I have They wouldn't be saying it, because they're dead. Or I would have to rethink <laughs> my ideas of the afterlife. So I was like, literally so full? Well, you were full. What, why do you have to use literally? Was... I do notice you were doing an American accent when you said that. Right. But the Amer- that was it's subcon- not just, it's that not was just America. It's not yeah. just America. Of course not. It's um, 
it's all across the English speaking world. So I do apologize for the subconsciousness there. But yeah, I just despise how freely this word is used. And it's one word that is possibly immune to evolution, immune to morphological change because of its essential meaning in that it's concrete. I suppose you know all about the idea of parasite words, words yeah. that don't really mean anything, but they exactly. latch on. Yeah. I mean, this is the termite of the English language. Yeah, so I, I wanna, So I'm not putting the word literally into Room 101, but the misuse of the word literally. I would happily put both of those things into Room 101. Thanks, everyone. We have been discussing Decline of the English Murder. Uh, this has been Orwellian. Thank you for joining us. My name is Lewis. Uh, I'm Simon. And I don't know why I had to say uh before that, <laughs> but <laughs> just had to recall. Yeah. Um, you got it written on the back of your hand. <laughs> yeah. You misspelled. S <laughs> one. Uh, <laughs> M A N. Um, and yes, if you want to contact us, uh, you can write to us. The email address is orwellpod at gmail.com. Please like and subscribe. Send or send a, a pigeon. Yes, or send Rambui. Um, <laughs> yes, write to us, like and subscribe, give us a review. Love reacts only, please. Are we on Instagram? We're not yet on Instagram, but we yeah. can talk about that. I don't think we're at an Instagram. <laughs> I think we're, we're very radio. Yes, <laughs> we've got radio faces. Yeah. Um, so, yes, thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. And as we like to say at Orwellian, Orwell that ends well. Oh, God, pal. <laughs>